I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today. Welcome to Women Who Shape the City. This podcast season is produced in partnership with VM Zinc, and you can hear VM Zinc, Celine Bandal, discuss the way Zinc has been shaping the city for the last 200 years in a special podcast that sits alongside this season at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. My guest today is Vic Wenray, who's a partner at Conran and Partners, who has a huge wealth of experience of delivering mixed use, regeneration and master planning projects. She's also an academician at the Academy of Urbanism and pre-COVID was a lead assessor for the European City of the Year. So Vic, you clearly live and breathe cities. What for you is special about cities and what can we learn from them? I think uh, for me, the amazing thing about cities is that they um, are places that can provide enormous uh, surprise and also possibility. So, so it, it, it is really about you, you know the idea that it's a living, breathing organism, and it, it it's about the built environment, but it also it's about what happens in the built environment. Importantly, and it's the built environment that then enables the city, I think, to be great because it enables people to be the best version of themselves. And um, if it's well designed then hopefully it's also an experience for everybody that everybody can partake in. So cities shouldn't be um, elitist and actually they're better if they're not, you know. So um, I think that's what I really enjoy about that. Also, the fact is that cities, good cities, they're different. So, you know, London is massively different to Paris, massively different to New York. There's always a common thread, but there's something that just makes it makes them buzz differently so again it goes back to that surprise and delight and opportunity I do appreciate that sometimes um, they're not the best of places because of that um, constant stimulation and uh, almost living cheek by jail as a result of being in the city so um, it's also I suppose I see I see part of my role is to enable uh, the city to keep uh, being exciting and vibrant but also uh, providing a bit of uh, repose as well and safety and uh, retreat and I think that's that's where I come in. You've got two hats haven't you really one is, is very much hands-on and mm. delivering projects on the ground and one is in a way more more sort of uh, observational and ambassadorial and academic so how do things like the academy of urbanism ensure that they have a sort of very proactive positive impact and that they don't somehow over theoreticize the city i guess so um the academy is um, a really good network of uh, practitioners and thinkers and i think that's important so it's people that work uh, and do and make and the people that think about it and um what we endeavour to do is to learn from our city. So there's a constant cycle of uh, visiting, assessing and understanding uh, different parts of the city. And there's a hierarchy. It goes from, you know, strategic thinking, uh, cities, so the European cities that you know I talked about. We don't all, always have to be in Europe, by the way. Sheffield was also uh, nominated re- uh, recently as a European city of the year. Um, shortlist I should say and uh, but coming all the way through to towns uh, to public squares uh, to streets and places so we recognize that you know city operates at different levels and um, it's all about learning from good examples that work in practice and then putting that uh, practice into theory in uh, future projects and the other great thing about the academy is uh, we encourage 
um, you know, obviously the academicians, we, we talk to each other and uh, encourage each other, but equally we encourage all of the participants to uh, speak to each other as well. So for example, um, the, the last sort of formal uh, European city visit I did was uh, with Porto, Utrecht and Sheffield, and they all speak to each other now on actually a fairly regular basis. So they share stories and uh, they encourage each other and uh, that's good you know that's the benefit of each other and they've each got stories to tell and strengths uh, but there's also uh, opportunities on both sides to learn as well. And do you think from all your sort of traveling and viewing and analyzing other cities is there any way you can point to at the moment that you think god London could really learn from there? Always but that's the great thing because it's never the job's never finished you know and that's you know as I think I said earlier on living as you know uh, cities are uh, breathing uh, organic uh, beings almost so they're always evolving and they're always improving um, so there's a couple of things one is uh, I suppose almost political Bilbao for example everybody knows of Bilbao um, as being um, the Guggenheim and um, if you speak to the people of Bilbao, I mean, the great thing about these city visits, you know, we get to speak to the decision makers and some of the politicians as well. And they, they obviously really love the, Bilba, uh, the, the, the Guggenheim in, in, in Bilbao, but they will say this, that's the cherry on the cake. And when you speak to them, the enormous amount of work that they've done to their infrastructure, to their housing, to their city, cleaning up the river is incredible that then led to the fact that they could bid for the Guggenheim. So it's a part of a very long story and actually it's a 25 year journey. So uh, I would say the Bilbao, one of the best uh, lessons to take away there from my perspective is thinking outside the political cycle and actually thinking ahead, what's my 25 year plan for the city? And then making sure that you enshrine it so that it can't be tampered with down the line by politicians that don't agree necessarily uh, or want to, you know, make some sort of political message or gain or something like that. So it's actually enshrined. It's, it, they believe it's the right thing to do. It's a it's a partnership between um, business and the politicians. So they all sign up to this as like being a, a, a joint vision. And then they have a manifesto that basically they stick with it and it can't be messed with. So I think for me, one of the things that I kind of get frustrated with is, you know, when I'm talking to local authorities, for example, the boroughs, is you can sort of almost see where does this fit in the political cycle? <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. And, and you know, our cycle can either be two years or four years. And, and you know, when you're working at the scale that we're talking about, that's just really difficult. And um, I find that uh, frustrating. And I, I think that's short-sighted. So what do you think needs to change in terms of the sort of political structures to allow London to be better at really setting out long term visions that are that are kind of immune from, as you say, the cycles of short term political elections? Yeah, I think that's a very long conversation, if I'm honest, because each city operates differently. So Bilbao has changed the way that they um function politically and have become of um and don't forget they're a smaller city so that they could that they can be more nimble i suppose so some of these cities i'm talking about are maybe the size of you know one or two of our boroughs so uh but giving um greater ownership to the to the leaders i think would be helpful uh in terms of uh creating the, that vision but then it has to be almost neutralized so it, it becomes uh, it doesn't become a political entity um, it becomes uh, for the people, as it were. So then that means we need probably more 
um, public-private partnership as well. Some cities are very good at it. Uh, Utrecht, for example, uh, it's called the Triple Helix. Uh, it's a very simple model, really. You've got government, uh, academia and businesses working together to actually uh, co-produce uh, the best version of what it can do. And they bring different elements to the party. And uh, by doing that, uh, it can then start to sit outside the political cycle and be like a manifesto or a vision for the city or that neighbourhood, for example. It can work at different levels. And we see it happening in small scales in some of our cities. Uh, Sheffield, for example, have got a really nice um, relationship with the university there. Uh, And there's a really nice story that... um, it's kind of a small story, but a big story, I think, that there's uh, a very sort of dilapidated, run-down uh, area of Sheffield, sort of burnt-out cars. It was, you know, not the place to go. And this lady basically took over a grassroots organisation just to try and do something with the landscaping there. Uh, and it, again, that was a real journey. But she uh, hooked up with the um, Sheffield University landscape team. And it was just, it was barren ground. The way she describes it, it was, you know, it's absolutely barren ground. And, you know, she was, you know, really uh, sort of thinking how she's going to, you know, deliver on her promise. And um, it was a very simple thing. It actually came from the seed strain uh, that could just thrive on basically zero nutrients. And they just scattered them over and just almost immediately uh, colour and green and life started to happen there. So it was kind of, it was like, I say it's a small thing, but it was a big thing. And then from that, they actually um, developed an, a small business model so that they started making the seeds that then they could um, sell to people. Uh, and uh, also helped with volunteers with the gardening. So it just started to, you know, it's very, very grassroots, you know, quite, quite literally. And uh, I suppose the end of that story is that they're, the, they're actually the wildflowers that ended up at the Olympic Park. I think those, you know, those moments of kind of, spontaneous energy are absolutely fantastic and of course London does have guerrilla gardening and oh yes parks yeah. Yeah. and of course um, it does. Yeah. I was talking last week to Morag Myerskoff and she yeah. now pretty much exclusively just works with communities and does these little meanwhile projects and and you know they're all fantastic so I guess my question to you is how you kind of harness and capture that energy and somehow work with what you can bring to the party which is obviously the might of a you know very established very professional very commercially successful practice how do you bring the clout that you have but actually make sure that it kind of enriches and encourages that energy rather than neutralizes it or sanitizes it To, to be honest I find it very easy but in, in one respect, you know, for me, it's quite straightforward. Um, every project is completely different. So, you, you know, one size does not remotely fit all. You know, myself and the team, we completely absorb ourselves in the context. So that's about the historical context, the physical existing, the social context, and sometimes the political context. So we almost become mini experts of that particular neighbourhood or area. Because for us, it's not about enforcing something. It's about creating something that's complementary. This is Women Who Shape the City, a series of conversations produced by Architecture Today in partnership with BM Zinc, shaping cities since 1837. You can find out more at bmzinc.co.uk. So it's understanding what's really strong about a particular neighbourhood or area or street and then understanding, and I suppose this is where our skill set comes in, understanding what would be a complementary benefit, which would actually create a wider benefit. We also, again, 
uh, for me, it's very important to think outside the red line. We have a red line boundary. We know that that's what we've got to work within. But there's all the stuff around it, you know, that's also very important. And how do we respond to that and bring that into the conversation of what we're producing? Because just something just landing and being quite alien to the environment isn't going to work. I mean, it does in some cases, I suppose, thinking about, you know, the Guggenheim, but not everything can take the Guggenheim, you know. And what we're, what we're about is enriching and layering into the growing city. So we're just the next uh, phase in that. And then part of that is, uh, I suppose, two things. One, working with very committed clients. The clients that have that, uh, I suppose, long-term vision. So, for example, uh, we work with local authorities, we work with housing associations, and we work with committed developers that have got a like-minded aspiration, uh, as we do, in terms of thinking about what we're doing is actually a responsibility. We can't just walk away with it. We've got to be proud of what we're doing and, and, you know, happy to put our name against it the second thing is actually uh, engaging as much as possible with the local community and the stakeholders because actually they're the experts of the area because they know what's going on they know what the gossip is but the stories that they can bring can really also help the narrative and uh, we work in a number of places where some of the existing residents will remain so we're creating new homes for them so they're also part of our client team as well and that's also very important and in so doing they have a, a proper sense of ownership and I think that's really important. And do you have an ongoing involvement in projects once you've actually finished the construction phase do you continue that relationship with the communities? We do to a lesser degree I would say I think one thing that we uh, it would be good if we did more of would be to kind of keep going back and visiting and seeing how they're settling in and what have you uh, and in truth some of our projects are so big that that's only just starting to happen in some cases with Butler's Wharf for example which is a legacy project I wasn't involved in that but we were the master planners uh, for the four hectare site there and until recently that was also our home in Shad Thames so I loved walking through that every day you know because uh, I was always learning what was successful about it and I could always see going back to observing cities are great aren't they because you can just kind of see how people respond to the environment and actually seeing how people responded to that environment and taking lessons away and it's also thinking for me it's thinking about the local neighborhood so it's the people that you know it's their day-to-day and then a lot of these places that we work in for example but there's Wolf, but also um, currently Portobello Square uh, will also be encouraging visitors so it's it's thinking about the ebb and flow of the daily life and that's really important uh, and that's a very early um, exercise that we go through is understanding okay so I'm a, a local uh, resident this is what my day is going to look like um, how am I going to feel walking along the street or going into this uh, corner shop you know uh, what's my trip to school feel like and then uh, the visitors that we're hoping are going to come to the site as well because we want to make it a neighborhood destination and then what, what's that crossover feel like and, you know, the ebb and flow um, of daily life. Years ago, um, when I was a student, um, I was tasked with, we were, we were doing a, a field trip to Rome. I think this is partly where my interest in the city really kind of came to light. I basically sat in um, a particular square, it's called Trastevere. My uh, pronunciation is terrible, so it's probably uh, Italians are rolling their eyes as they speak. And I literally sat there for the whole day and I mapped the sunlight and I saw the times that the deliveries came uh, when uh, the locals came out for the coffee in the morning and that was mostly the blokes and then there was the kind of the school kids coming and then there was the bit of shopping at a certain point of the day and that's when I realised that this little square had a real 
ecosystem. So from that, I always try and imagine what ecosystem it is that we're creating, because then that gives it depth. So that brings me on to your project at Portobello Road, which I was looking at, and I was intrigued to see that there have been various attempts over the last decades to kind of correct things that aren't working on the residential housing there. You must have looked at those attempts very, very hard because that's everybody's biggest fear, isn't it? That somehow we're making the wrong decisions when we try and put things right and the history will, mm. will judge us harshly. Do you think looking back that part of the reason those attempts failed was because they were purely spatial and people hadn't gone through that exercise you're talking about of actually thinking of the city as a, a complex ecosystem? Yeah, um, I think actually that's quite a good way of putting it, that there was... Um, so are you talking about those uh, linear slab-like blocks that are connected by the deck yeah, exactly access? So, I mean, I mean, it was effectively an experiment, wasn't it? It was kind of like post-war uh, housing, empty site, and trying to be ambitious to uh, quickly house um, a lot of people. And um, this was one way of doing it. And the old streets in the kind of first, second and third stories, not quite streets in the sky like Dennis Lasden, but, uh, you know, that kind of idea. And yes, that clearly didn't work. And I think it was because, as you were saying, it was coming from a singular point of view. How can we house this number of people? There was no sense of um, identity or localism or neighbourhood. So I, I, rather than regeneration, I always like to say neighbourhood because I, just, I think that's what we're trying to do. Regeneration sounds a little bit singular to me. So neighbourhood is really about that kind of overlapping, that layered journey, I suppose. And we, we've got a lovely historic photograph where Portobello did actually join up with Labrook Grove and Warnington Green. And it came to a junction. And it was actually very low key. I mean, it was black and white. It was probably from the 1920s or something like that. But it still had the corner shops with the awnings. And, you know, so even sort of pre-Portobello sort of blossoming, it was still very much a heart and soul. And what happened with these linear blocks, that heart and soul basically was forgotten. What do you think has been the impact of the, the last couple of years on really our understanding of neighbourhood? And we know anecdotally that people now are they've maybe moved out of the city or maybe they're saying in the city, but they live and work in their house. They don't have that sense of going to work. And I just wondered whether that, had, well, A, changed your attitude to the city and B, changed the way that you work and approach these kind of projects. Um, a, few, a few things there. Uh, one is just talking about that point about COVID and actually how the centre of cities like London did actually hollow out. But the, uh, the flip side of that was that local community neighbourhoods actually flourished. There was an opportunity there for people to re-engage with their very close neighbourhood and actually they became quite richer environments and um, again you know just being a, um, a constant learner in these things I looked at my neighbourhood and kind of mapped out how things changed and would go and talk to my uh, local shopkeepers. I live in Brighton I purposely live in you know a kind of neighbourhood area which has got a high street. There was more entrepreneurship because uh, the baker rather than just make, making bread, was actually selling flour also and selling like recipe sheets for the bread. And the coffee shop couldn't open, but actually they were selling produce because they could they still had a supplier. So, you know, that's where you could get your tin tomatoes and cheese and things like that from. So it changed and it became actually friendlier. So I think actually there's lessons learned from that and then how you bring that back into the big cities. And to be honest, that's what I've always tried to do. So in terms of my working practice, I don't think it's changed that much. What it has done, it's reinforced the idea and made my conversations with people easier. I'm very curious about the, the Conran brand and the legacy. Yeah. And, you know, here you are doing incredibly kind of really quite gritty work. You know, you're working at the kind of the tough end of regeneration. You're doing this very sort of serious projects. And obviously Conran is, is 
well, it's probably one of the most well-known names in architecture, but actually it's associated historically with glitzy restaurants. I mean, of course, Habitat, which was yeah. very egalitarian, but, you know, it's it's got this kind of lifestyle sparkle. And I wonder whether in a way that stands in your way when you're trying to be taken very, very seriously, these huge projects, <laughs> and whether it's baggage as much as it's a privilege to carry that name. There's a, a line that Terence used to say, which I really love, and that's um, good design improves the quality of people's lives. And I think that's what we do across the business. And it's very much a tenet that all the partners, uh, there are four creative partners now that we all uh, separately believe in, uh, but we do deliver it in different ways. Vic Wenray, thank you so much for talking to me today. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Yemi Eladaran about combining activism with her role as an architect and client. You've been listening to Women Who Shape the City, brought to you by Architecture Today in partnership with VMs Inc., shaping cities since 1837. Visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast to download the complete collection of 80 conversations or to listen to a special episode with VMs Inc.'s Celine Van Dahl.